How can you get a home when the bank says no? This podcast is dedicated to the 1 in 10 homeowners denied each year by the banks. Welcome to the pre-approved podcast. Good morning, David. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Adam. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. I'm excited to dive in. You are the first and only person that I've talked to that really specializes in, although you've done a lot of things specifically on the buying and selling, we've talked about like a little bit about like franchising, how much a business is worth. And so I'm hoping that just by asking this first question, you can expand a little bit on your background as well, even though the listeners will get a chance to, to look at that is, let's say someone has their own business, small or medium size, and they're like, hmm, I wonder how much this thing is worth. And, and they, where would you recommend they start on Google, you know, some different things, but that, that question probably surfaces a lot, you know, on someone's mind and can be a really broad topic. Any suggestions on where to potentially go from there for, for some people just first considering that? Yeah. If you own a business and you're, and you, you want to have some kind of idea of what it might be worth, uh, the first place to start is on your own P and L or income statement, um, and look at what it says down at the bottom. And that's where you start. So you start down at the bottom where hopefully there's a positive net income. And then you start to work your way up through the P&L and look at every expense line and look at all of the things that you can identify that are really part of the profit that, that you've managed to somehow couch inside that P&L. So, you know, if you did a repair to your personal car and you put that into the maintenance and repair expense of your business, or if you, you know, took a vacation and, uh, you know, spoke at length with a bartender about business and try to write it off as a business trip, like go through all that stuff, you know, your teenage daughters who's got a company cell phone, that kind of thing, and add up all the different things in, in your business that are really part of the profit that really add to the total lifestyle allotment that this business provides to you as the owner. Um, and, and as well as any, you know, sort of um, actual payroll you give yourself. Like if you're in the States, a W-2 in Canada would be a T-4. You know, any of those sort of declared pay stubs that you give yourself, add it all up and find out exactly what the net cash flow benefit is to you as the owner of this business. Now, then you need to go through it again and look for all the places where your business, for whatever reason, is missing some expenses. And you're going to need to adjust for those as well. So <clears throat> let me give you an idea. If your business owns its building, then there will unlike probably not be a rent expense on your PL. And so the problem with that is that the way we evaluate property is very different from the way we evaluate businesses. So if you get a, a building appraised, for example, a commercial property, a real estate appraiser is going to come in, see how big it is. One of the methods that they're going to use is an income method, and they're going to look at what other buildings like yours are getting for rent in the area. And so that's going to determine the value of the building. But if your business owns a building, then you have a real estate management company and whatever your business is, repair shop, auto service, dry cleaner, whatever you're doing, it's all kind of mishmashed together into one entity. So we need to separate that out because the way that the property appraiser appraises the building and the way that someone's going to evaluate your laundromat or auto repair shop are very different. So this is when we start to add expenses that may not necessarily appear. 
So if you own your own building, you're going to have to figure out what a fair rent would be for that. And you're going to add that in as an expense. And if your spouse comes in to your business in the evenings and does up invoicing and things for your business, and you don't actually write a paycheck to your spouse, then you're going to have to make some kind of allowance for what a different owner would have to pay to have someone doing that kind of service. And so the, what, what I'm describing here is called normalization. We're trying to answer the question, what would happen if somebody else owned this business and ran everything by the book and were strictly doing the business at hand? For example, the dry cleaner, the auto repair, the restaurant, whatever it is. And they, they didn't own the building. The you know, building was owned by a stranger. And so now that you've gone through and you've done this normalization process, what is the number, the real number that you're left with? Because Adam, quite frankly, I go through this exercise with a lot of people who, when they finish this exercise, they realize that the number at the bottom is very similar to what they might earn if they just went out and worked in a job somewhere. And, and so, unfortunately, a lot of the times I have to have conversations with people where I describe what they've got going on. You know, everyone wants to call it a business, but I think that's too broad a term. I like to be more specific. So in my jargon, a business is actually only an organized, systematized way of operating and serving customers for money that delivers a positive cash flow over and above what one might normally earn doing the job of being the manager of that business. So if that number you've come up with is equal to what you would earn working someplace else, then you don't actually own a business, you own a job. If it's a greater number than what you might normally earn, well, then you're, you're able to pay yourself a fair market wage for what you do every day. And there's another amount of cash flow, which we can actually call your profit as an investor in this business. Okay. So that's, that's the exciting scenario. That's, that's when we've got real money over and above what you would earn working for somebody else. And now Adam, and this is a really unfortunate one is if the number is lower than what you would earn working in a job, then there's a, the, another word for that. It's an H word. Uh, it's called the hobby. And so what that means is that you are devoting time and effort to doing something every day um, and getting no real compensation. And, and the difference between uh, somebody who has set up what they hope to become a business who is earning less than they would earn working, doing that same role for somebody else and a person who builds model trains in their basement is that the person who builds model trains in their basement understands fully that they're engaged in a hobby, that they're spending their time and money and effort doing something that they get pleasure out of. And unfortunately, I've met too many people over the years who, who have put a lot of time and effort and energy into trying to build a business. They still don't earn what they would earn if some stranger owned the business and they were an employee there. And, and that's the difficult one. Now, you asked me what what a business is worth. So when you get that final number, whatever it happens to be, sit back and ask yourself, um, if I were a stranger and I was going to acquire that cash flow, given the fact that I have to work full time to get the cash flow, what would I be willing to pay? And so it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because the answer would be different based on who is answering the question. And this is what makes the market for businesses so interesting. It's, number one, it's a very opaque market. It's not transparent to any degree. Um, most businesses that are for sale are for sale secretly. Um, even if you found one by chance and you talked with the person who owned it, they would probably tell you their business wasn't for sale. Because if it becomes public that a business is for sale, the business can be damaged. 
relationships with employees, suppliers, customers, et cetera, can, can be strained if people find out a business is for sale. So it's, it's a very weird market. It's a secret market. Um, if I am a person with a university degree, and right now the job market's pretty hot for anyone really um, who out there looking for work, uh, you know, how much would I pay for a business that might earn me 70 grand a year, right? I, I could probably go get a job that pays that much, right? So it's really not of interest or have any value to that kind of buyer. But a business that earns 70,000 a year might be very interesting for someone, for example, who's new to the country, who has a bit of a language barrier, their professional uh, designations in their homeland don't apply in the new country, right? That person now has a hurdle to getting an income and they may be interested in actually paying money to acquire that $70,000 a year cash flow from the business. So in general, if a business, and we're talking about small businesses with cash flow under half a million that are typically owner managed, right? Um, most of the really good ones in that category sell for a multiple of seller's discretionary earnings, which is the total amount of cash available to an owner operator that works full time, um, is somewhere between two and two and a half times that number, which is, Adam is not exciting at all. And most of the time when I talk with business owners um, and I explain what their business is likely worth, and this is a rule of thumb. So if you're in the restaurant trade, that number is going to be lower. If you're in the septic pumping business, that number could be higher. It varies by industry because it's modified by risk that, that people see between one industry and the other. But most of the time when I say to people, this is what your business is worth, they'll go, wow, if I just kept it for a couple of years, I would have the same money which is why you don't see uh, people falling all over themselves to cash out of small and medium-sized businesses. Like you might see these, you know, stories out of Silicon Valley, right? You know, the, the person with the high-tech company sells for a hundred times earnings or whatever. That, that's not the reality of, of real everyday businesses. And so because the value is quite low, what ends up happening is that these businesses really only go up for sale when there's a pressing personal concern on the part of the owner that they realize they need to move on to something else. And so, you know, we can get into those reasons, but the first question, you know, what's a business worth? It's based on the cash flow, a real cash flow of what somebody would really benefit from owning the business. And we've talked about normalization. The second question though, that any buyer is going to ask is they're going to say, okay, so Adam, let's say you've, you've got the successful business, let's call it a pizzeria, Adam's Pizza Shop, and you've been running it for 20 years. And I see that it's got a cash flow, a, a owner's benefit of about hundred grand a year for someone who works in it full time. And I'm going to say, all right, well, maybe I would offer Adam 160 or $200,000 for that business. The second question that's going to come across my mind is, will that cash flow continue under my stewardship? And that's when we start to get into things like, well, what processes are in place? What tools are in place? You know, um, do I have the confidence if I've never run such a business that I'll be able to fill Adam's shoes? And that's when the buyers start to look at things like documented procedures and operators manuals, and they want to look at your tools. And so, you know, for something like a pizza shop, they're going to look at what kind of order management system do you use? Are customers able to log in? You know, you don't have to have the best things that are available out there, um, but you have to have something. I'll, I'll give you a, a quick story. Uh, in fact, the story came up just the other day. Um, there, I sold uh, 
two restaurants at the same time. It was, there were two franchises owned by the same person and the buyer and seller were sitting down and the buyer had worked in restaurants before, but had never owned one and said, you know, I'm concerned that there could be turnover in the business. I'm worried that if I lose a bunch of employees, I'll be stuck. I'm really going to be relying on these employees to help me run the business. And the seller leaned forward in his chair and said, you know, dude, it's a restaurant. Within a year, they'll all be gone. And so, you know, basically confirming the buyer's biggest fear. But then the seller said, that's why I've created a process that helps me identify and find the best potential candidates. And then he went on to describe the types of ads he puts onto Craigslist, other different online sites, um, and, and how they've evolved over time and why they contain different things. And then he described his process. So people responded to the ads and then with their resume usually, or some kind of uh, summary of their experience, he would reply back asking them to phone his cell phone to make an appointment. He said only half the people he emailed back even bothered to call him. And that was one of the hurdles he created just to see who was really interested in working or not, right? And so he started to describe this process that he had created over time that allowed him to identify who he thought was really eager to work. And then when they would come in, he had these packages that he had put together. So if you were going to be a server or a line cook or a chef in the, in the back, he would have these documents put together that would highlight all the processes with a copy of the menu. So, and he would give it to them so they could look it through before their first day and have some degree of familiarity. All of this stuff he had put together, what he was describing was a system for hiring and engaging with new employees. And what that did for the buyer is it totally removed the stress from that part of you know, the acquisition. They weren't as concerned anymore because they knew that in the transition period, so when you buy a business, you usually have the seller stick around for a while to do a transition, that they would be learning this whole process and that they would be able to deal with their fear, which was the turnover. So it's a, it's a two-part thing. It's mm -hmm. what the business is worth is based on the cash flow. And whether or not the buyer will ultimately buy it is based on whether they think they can carry it on. Um, is there, if, is there a, a point I know, um, you know, if you're looking at QuickBooks or different things, there's what people call maybe like a cash flow, then there's a profit and loss, and then there's like a true balance sheet. And so kind of what you talked about was, I think what the acronym is SDE or seller's discretionary mm -hmm. earnings as kind of the, maybe one of the most key metrics. Are there is that kind of like the primary one? And then, you know, maybe just some ancillary stuff like, oh, if they happen to own a tractor and some other stuff like that, that's maybe just some overall assets and liabilities considerations that go into it. It's a great question because that SDE, when we multiply it, we get something called the enterprise value. And Adam, we're going to peel back here the page on something even a lot of business brokers don't understand. That is the value of the cash flow. Okay, so that's what someone's willing to pay to have that money flowing to them every year. You can't sell somebody part of what they need to produce that cash flow for that price. That someone's going to need everything required in order to make that cash flow. So there are circumstances where people will look at a cash flow. Let's talk about the pizzeria. Let's say that I agreed to offer you 175 or 200,000 for that pizzeria. And you say, whoa, wait a minute. It cost me half a million dollars to build this place, right? I, I, I'm not going to sell it for that. So, so what has happened? You invested half a million dollars to build the pizzeria. 
but the cash flow coming from it is only worth 175 or 200,000. What has happened is that you've actually had an investment loss, but you didn't know it because there's no way of gauging the value of your business over the interim. So let's use an example. You buy um, $100 worth of telephone company stock on the stock exchange, and the next day the price goes down and now it's only worth 80. You understand that you just lost 20 bucks, right? Because there's a mechanism in place that tells you every day what your shares are worth. In a small or medium-sized business, that mechanism doesn't exist. And so this is why um, sometimes a business will simply close and they'll auction off equipment or it'll close and, and they'll put pieces of equipment with dealers or the owner will liquidate and sell stuff off because the cash flow was never worth as much as the liquidation value of the business. And so, and this of course leads to the other conversation about how this is a difficult, opaque, non-transparent market. Sometimes business owners, when they realize what's going to be involved in selling a business and how long it might take, uh, because it's, you know, it's not quick. Sometimes a business will be on the market for a year or more. Um, and when they look at what it might sell for versus what they might get in a liquidation uh, and all the costs associated with selling, legal fees, broker's fees, et cetera, some people will actually choose the liquidation because they can control its timeline. They can, they can say, you know, I'm going to mm -hmm. run the business until after the busy season this year, then I'm going to close it and I'm going to liquidate. Uh, or if they're not doing well financially, they might people just realize, you know, who's going to pay me money to step into this position. One of the unfortunate things that I run across in the marketplace is I'll get approached by sellers, owners of businesses who start watching my YouTube videos and they'll, they'll reach out to me and they'll say, David, I've been trying to sell my business for two years and nobody is making me offers. Nobody's trying to buy it. And, you know, they've usually got some big reason why they want to sell. I know we haven't touched on that. Maybe we'll get into that next, but um, I can, can you look at it and tell me why? And maybe they've gotten a business broker who has put together a package for them, a, a, what we call a business profile or a confidential information memorandum, sometimes a SIM. And they'll send it to me and I'll look through it and I'll get back to them. They'll say, look, here are the facts. There's this, 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 and this. And this is why your business is only actually worth about a third of what you're asking. And so they're shocked. They're like, what do you mean? You know, I've got, to your point, I've got this tractor, I've got this truck, I've got all this stuff. It doesn't matter. If you, if you tie up capital into an activity that is not producing an adequate rate of return, it's not going to add value to your business. There's analogies for this in real estate. I mean, you can take a double wide trailer home, put golden faucets in it. You're probably not going to recapture the cost of putting in the golden faucets, right? It's, it's just, it's going to have a certain value based on what it is. And so, yeah, the cash flow includes everything required to run the business. So that includes machinery. So our enterprise value includes a machinery and includes a net normal position in working capital. This is the other thing that, that comes up often is people don't understand, you know, I'm, I'm selling my business, but I get to keep the cash, right? And the receivables. And it's not as simple as that. The net position in working capital is the amount of money that an owner under normal circumstances has to have tied up in the business. So let me give you an example. You can have a lumber yard, Adam, um, that has a million dollars worth of inventory out in the out in the yard, and lumber, blocks, bricks, that kind of thing. And the business earns two hundred grand a year. And you look at that business and you say, well, the business, you know, according to its cash flow, is worth half a million, but there's a million dollars worth of inventory. How, how 
how can I reconcile this? What, how does this make sense? Well, in addition to normalizing the PL, we have to also normalize the balance sheet. So when we look at the balance sheet, the first question I ask is what are these different components of working capital? So there's receivables, there's inventory, and there's payables, right? Which is other people's money that you owe to them. So in the case of a lumberyard, we're talking about what we call a fungible inventory, which means that a two by four is a two by four. And if you ever close the business, another, another lumberyard would take that two by four, no problem, right? It's just very uh, common and it doesn't go bad. So it's not like apples or something perishable or something that goes out of style or out of season like ladies' dresses, right? So that million dollar inventory at the lumberyard, a bank might be willing to finance three quarters of that. So if you're gonna buy the business, you actually don't have to come up with the million dollars. You can get three quarters of a million from a bank on a revolving line of credit, which you will never pay off, right? You're just gonna keep putting money on it and pulling money off it as your inventory rotates, right? And so that's three quarters of that million dollars. Now, because you've got constantly receiving deliveries of stuff and most of your suppliers are giving you 30 day terms, let's say, at any given time, you should owe your suppliers about 200 grand. Well, that's another $200,000 of that inventory that's being carried by the bank and your suppliers. So now you can see that if you own the business, you actually only need to have 50 grand of your own money in order to support that million dollars of inventory. Now, we're talking about a fungible inventory with real value, okay? And it's different by industry. So if you were to agree to pay half a million dollars for that $200,000 cash flowing lumberyard, the half a million you pay needs to include the 50,000 of what we call net normal position in working capital. Because that 50 grand is necessary to make the business function just like the forklift or the cash register is. And this is where some buyers get pinched up because what they'll do is they'll, they'll forget about this or they won't understand it and they'll end up overpaying it. They'll pay the full half a million to the seller and then they'll have to go out of pocket for the 50 grand in order to float the inventory with the bank financing and the suppliers. And really what should be happening is they need to make an adjustment on closing day where they say, here's my offer adjusted for net position of working capital. So they really only give the seller 450. Now that seller in this scenario, they're taking all the cash out of the till, right? And they're, they're, you know, probably going to collect their receivables and they're going to pay off their payables. They're going to pay off their bank line, et cetera, as I max out my bank line to make the acquisition. So it all kinds of smooths over, but that's a common mistake that most buyers make is they don't understand. It's not just the P and L we normalize. It's also the balance sheet. For sure. So I, I really like a couple of things that you said on there where the difference between the hobby, giving yourself a job in a business basically of like, Hey, are you making probably, you know, your hundred thousand dollars a year or less or more kind of having those three categories. So that was pretty cool. You did touch on something else about the idea of why someone's business is not selling, um, hmm. you know, said it's, uh, you know, maybe going there. So I, I figured um, before we go into that one next, the idea of, okay, somebody's looking at selling a business or valuating it. You have a lot of good stuff too on, like how risky is it to buy a business or should I invest in a small business? The difference between like a franchise and should I go into that or, you know, getting into a business with zero down. So now that we've kind of talked about the seller and we've um, maybe come mm -hmm. back to that on a few things, putting on your other hat that you've helped, you know, two parties come to the same table in your same example. Well, now you're a buyer. You're like, man, I, I really want to do something. And I, I, I'm, I got X amount of capital. 
and I want to do something that's either within my field, um, maybe taking us uh, on a journey too for where you've helped individuals and kind of where you see them taking some good first steps when they're looking to buy a business. Sure. Well, the first thing that, that I want to point out to people is that the reason why these small businesses sell for a relatively low multiple of cash flow is because they're generally seen as one of the riskiest asset classes out there. If you look at a 2.2 times cash flow multiplier, that equates to a 40% rate of return. Okay. And so th- there's that, that balance between risk and return. So people, you know, here's the best way I can describe it. Think of a business near your house. I don't care how big a business it is, but just think of a business near your house. Now imagine, are you willing to bet me money that it'll still be open in a year? And a lot of people would be confident in that bet, right? They say, oh, okay, yeah, you know, I think it'll still be there in a year. You know, they'll say it's a gas station, right? Sure, it's been there forever. I think it'll be there in a year. And they, okay, we'll be there in two years. Sure, most people would agree. How about three? Well, now we're going to have some people start talking about Teslas and electric cars, right? And just how quickly people are buying them. And you only have to get a couple of years into the future before people start to, in great numbers, have doubts about whether or not something could happen. And when you introduce not just the idea of like a big technology change, but introduce the idea of, you know, there's empty land across the street. What if another competitor moved in, right? Well, hey, that could happen any day. We have no idea, right? Or what if there's some kind of rule change? Or what if the city decides to replace all the sewer pipes in front of it and nobody can get there for six months, right? And you start to realize that the types and numbers of potential risks that can affect a small business are huge. What about like a germ? (laughs) Before last year, we wouldn't have thought that that would have been a problem, right? Mm -hmm. But clearly that could be. And, And so there's all these kinds of risks which require the rate of return to be high. And if you're a buyer, um, you're keenly aware that you have a choice of buying a business or starting one, right? And a lot of people talk about starting a business. And the reason why people will oftentimes come to the idea of buying one is they'll realize, hey, there's like a 90% failure rate for new businesses. So buying a business is about reducing risk. It's about acquiring a business that already has customers, that already has processes and procedures, is already known in the marketplace, et cetera. And so when we buy the business, we're already getting rid of what I call the startup risk. Now we need to make sure that we follow through with our risk aversion and make a deal that actually protects us in case there's some kind of major decline in what goes on in the business or that we've been lied to or that we've been given the wrong information. You know, when you, when you buy a house, you can have a home inspector come and take a look at it. And it's pretty, you know, they can be pretty good at finding problems that might exist in the house. And so, you know what you're buying. When it comes to a business, there are so many variables completely outside of our control, or even that might be discoverable, or they could be discoverable. They just cost way too much to discover. Right. And so the due diligence required to be absolutely certain would just be too much for the type of business we're buying. And so what we do is we, we build in mechanisms in the deal structure. So one of my favorites is to have a seller, good amount of seller financing. So you buy the business, maybe you borrow from the bank, you put in some of your own money and you borrow from the seller. And that seller note contains a clause saying that the note is subject to offset in the case of a material misrepresentation or an undiscovered lien or liability. And what that does is it means that if they lied to you during the purchase process, you now have a, a method of recourse. 
where you haven't given them all the money yet. So you control the flow of the funds, right? So that's one way that we can manage risk. If you were to buy a business and put every last nickel in that you had, and you still manage to pull off the deal. A lot of times bankers want to see that you have additional resources available should something go wrong, that you can like put in some extra money. But let's say you did manage to buy a business using every last nickel. So you didn't use a bank. I've actually seen examples of people who will like max out credit cards and like different finance products where they don't actually have to go ask permission, right? Like they use their line of credits, they use their credit cards, et cetera. They, they max everything out, they buy a business. And then there's some kind of hiccup. And because they're in this over leveraged position, they don't have room to maneuver. And I'm, I'm sure Adam, like in the world of real estate, you've probably seen this too with people that rent out properties, you know, they just can't afford to have a vacancy. And that's when they rent to the wrong person, which opens up the door to all kinds of heartache and problems in, in the real estate holding. And it's the same thing in business. If you are, if you've got your back to the wall and you don't have any room to move, that's when you make mistakes out of a position of scarcity, when the business should be bringing abundance into your life. It's, it's a business is a vehicle to create a, you're buying a cash flow, but it's also taking you someplace you want to go to meet your long-term goals. So you need to have some kind of vision of where you want to be in 10 years so that when you decide what kind of business you want to go buy and you start to look at businesses that are for sale, you can evaluate that cash flow. You can evaluate whether you can take it over and you can decide for yourself, is this going to get me where I want to go? You know, is this going to take me to the place that I'd like to be in 10 years, whatever those goals might be. And if anybody's listening, wondering why David knows so much about this, in addition to probably your years of experience, I think you've written at least eight books related to, to different things. And I'll run through them quick here where it was smarter than a startup, invest local, 12 things to do before you consider selling your business, how to sell my own business, 21 stupid things people do trying to buy a business, credit card advantage, how to borrow money from your business broker, and the franchise warning. So if, if you're wondering why David's got such a wealth of knowledge on doing this, it's, he's, he's writing the books on it. It's a, a great content. He's got a YouTube channel. That's a really good thing. So David, maybe... Um, you're, you're, the most common ways that you're helping people, you, you've certainly demonstrated how much you know on both the buying and the selling, specific to buying and selling businesses. When, when people want to get a hold of you or hear you, is it what are those people like and how is it working with you as far as like someone's like, oh, I'm really like, I got like, I'm thinking of my dad, for instance, he's got, you know, he's getting to that 60 year old age, he's got his own business. He's like, oh, am I going to sell this? Am I just going to like close the door and liquidate? Or mm. can I sell this? And what's it actually worth? So maybe those people that are looking at selling or someone's like, boy, I, I really like that shop that I think somebody's thinking about selling. Like, well, how would somebody usually contact you? Or what, what would you recommend that process look like for you being kind of their guide along this? Yeah, sure. So from the point of view of sellers, um, here's what I've learned over the years is that 90% of people don't actually see themselves who own a business, don't actually see themselves as business owners in that they don't see their business as an asset. They consider themselves roofers, carpenters, mechanics, pizza makers, et cetera. And then when something happens in their life to force them to move on, that's when they scramble to try to figure out this business selling thing. <clears throat> so I would say that anyone out there who's listening, who has a business you want to try and get your business into a state where it's ready to sell because you don't know what's going to happen to cause it to you to want to sell. And so the people who do contact me who have a couple of years horizon 
this is where I can do the greatest good because what I'll do is I'll take you through an evaluation process, show you what the business is worth. And in that process, I can usually find a whole list of things that you can work on. You know, here's what you need to address or, or like benchmarking things. Like people are often shocked when I tell them that their average cost of goods sold is like 36%, but the industry average is 31. And I'll say like, you have a million dollar business, which means there's 50 grand a year that should be on the bottom line. It's not right. So what is the problem? Are you paying too much? Are you not efficient or are your prices too low? Right. And, and business owners that have been successful over a long time that don't have a big debt, the banker's not chasing them all the time. And so they don't feel that constant pressure to be always managing these things, making sure their price is in line, their costs are good, et cetera. And so these are the things that someone can work on to increase that cash flow, which ultimately increases the value. So from the selling side, I, I, I work on a menu. So basically I've got a menu, an evaluation, I charge a certain amount, and then I do a packaging, which is when I prepare all the documentation for a potential buyer, I charge for that. If somebody wants my help to find a buyer, I'll run an ad campaign for them. And then I'll coach them through talking with that seller or with, with the buyer. So, we'll have, and we'll have some links on how to do that. And sorry to interrupt, but so yeah. someone's like, oh, immediately like, oh, I'm thinking about that. And I want to yeah. get a hold of David. What's the best way to do that? Uh, if someone wants to sell a business, it's how to sell my own business.com. And that's purely about selling a business. So, um, and, and so I'm not a full service business broker. What I, I describe it is I coach people through the process and I do consulting work to help them do the things they can't do on their own. And as a result of that, when they get to the end and they sell, there's no commission or anything. So it's really a decision someone has to make about whether they want to have someone uh, represent them and, and like stand between them and the buyers. This is what a broker would do. Or if they feel they can do it on their own. 80% of small businesses trade hands without any kind of intermediary. And so I saw that as the greatest market for my services because I can help those people um, without, you know, costing as much. When I, I used to have a business brokerage office and I sold 36 companies in three years and the number of times that I worked with people and nothing happened was huge. So I was investing a lot of time working with people, a deal never came about. And then when people were successful, when they had built a successful profitable business that people wanted to buy, I had to charge those people a, a pretty high commission in order to make my living. And I realized one day that the successful business operators were actually subsidizing my efforts with the unsuccessful ones. And that to me is not really fair. So today what happens is I have the same business model that a lawyer or an accountant would have. You know, you come to me, I do work for you, you pay me. And so for me, it's a smoother cash flow because I'm working with people all the time and charging them a much lower amount of money. And for the people that have successful businesses, they end up being able to sell without, you know, paying the, the what can sometimes be a very big broker's commission. Understood. From the buyer side, um, it's a little bit different because a lot of people get the idea that they want to buy a business, but they're not sure. And so I do one-on-one -on -one, uh, coaching calls, one-on-one -on -one consulting with people by the hour. Um, I began to notice over time, everyone was asking me the same questions. So I created an online course, which is about 13 hours of content. And it's all the standard stuff that everyone kept asking me over and over again. So it takes you through the process from start to finish. A lot of people will take that course and they'll go off and they'll buy a business. A lot of people will take that course and realize that it's not for them, which in my books is a success because it means that somebody knows that they, they don't have the aptitude or the real desire given what they've learned 
in how these deals actually go down. Yeah, and spe- and for- instead of buying a specialty medical services equipment and you're like, oh, I want to do that because I can. And they're like, oh, I'm into this now. Now what? Now what? Now do I sell? Do, do I buy and sell like a quick stock in this way going through the course? Which, how do they find you on the course, David? Uh, it's over at businessbuyeradvantage.com. Sounds good. So the, 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 you raise a great point about liquidity. So if you bought 100 shares of the phone company like we talked about earlier, and you decided after a week you didn't like the phone company anymore, then you could sell them anytime the stock market's open. But if you buy a small business, you may be stuck with it for years before you could sell it again. Because as soon as you take it over, there's going to be an adjustment period. And there's going to be this break between the seller's financials and your own. And then if you try to sell it to someone else, they're immediately going to say, well, why do you want to sell? You've only had it for eight months or what have you. And, and they're going to want to see a full accounting period, right? And sure. so all of these things start to happen that really make it not so feasible to sell it right away. You, you really will be in there for a few years and you, people are going to want to see a track record of consistency. That's the number the, one thing people want is consistency. Sure. It, it, uh, it, and I know we're, we're probably getting closer to the time, but it, it brought up one thing that I've heard of that I thought you would be a great person to answer this of. You've talked about buying and selling. I'm going to call between entity A and entity B. Is there times where entity A has, has owner one and owner two, and the two of them are trying to figure out, okay, well, if I got out of this, you know, on some sort of buy seller agreement, well, how much is this company actually worth? Is that something that you dabble in or is that kind of its own separate thing where you have two people, one person's like, well, you know what? I'd like to move on, but how do what how do I know like what's a fair market value to this? And I imagine, you know, there's maybe just some internal mediation that that two business partners could do. But do you ever find yourself being solicited that way to figure out, hey, if we yeah. if we sold this? So I see you nodding along. Well, it's it's I'm on this uh, this telephone consulting platform called Clarity, and maybe 15 or 20 percent of the people that approach me on there have a partnership problem, mm. and they're they they have a partner and they want out either either to get rid of the partner or to for they themselves to leave, and so it, it's it's quite quite a common thing. And what usually ends up happening is I'll I'll offer one of two things that I can do for them. I can either work for them and create a valuation, help them see what the business might be worth. And then their partner often will go away and do something of that kind of work too. And then you compare the documents and try to negotiate or I'll offer, you know, Hey, I could work for the both of you and our next call could have uh, both partners and myself. I can work through this with full transparency with both people and then show both of you, you know, what I've found and why I've come up with the number I have and suggest different ways that you might want to reconcile this. Um, because once you know that there's a problem between two partners, it's, it's the same as once a person realizes that they're just burned out from owning a business, they've got to move on. You know, of the five reasons people sell a business, burnout, fatigue, and exhaustion is number one. And if you keep going into that business, your attitude will wear off on the employees and it will start to be noticeable to the customers. And we've all gone into a business where you could tell that nobody really wanted to be there, right? It's not a place we want to go. It's not a place where we want to go and spend our money and do business. And so this attitude problem, uh, once it starts to, to be rooted in a business, will start to affect numbers. And so when someone makes a decision, 
you know, they see their phone ringing and they're not sure who they're more afraid of, either a customer or an employee. That's, that's when you know in your gut it's time to move on and find something else to do. And, but for most entrepreneurs, like if you were talking about a job, most people realize right away, hey, if I hate my job, I'm going to go look for a new one and I'll quit, right? But for most business owners, most of their family's net worth is tied up in the business, which means moving on usually if they can involve some, a sale if they can to try to get some of that value out in order to facilitate the next thing. Whether the next thing is, is maybe going back to working for someone else or going to start some other business that captures your attention at the time. That's, that's excellent. Um, I, it's, it's a little bit tricky getting into this, but when someone's like, hey, I'm, I'm interested in potentially hiring David where you have multiple things, we're like, oh, I got a course, I got maybe some free content you know, on social media, I got different books that you can read or you can pay to get you know, David's time. Are those, are those kind of the, the main channels where it's kind of uh, uh, maybe free, low cost, and then, you know, course, and then, you know, getting your actual time? Is that kind of the, the different levels that you yep. offer, David? Exactly. And, you know, whenever I'm invited to come on a, on a show like this, I always say, hey, if, if someone in the audience is just interested in learning about buying and selling or financing or managing small businesses, like find me on YouTube or, my, or the podcast stream, because every week I'm answering a question that someone has submitted. And it's like, it's all there. There's literally, I think I started in 2014. So there's almost seven years now of videos and you can get as deep as you want into it. A lot of the times I'll get an email from someone who wants to work with me and they'll say, David, I've just spent the last week watching your videos. And you know, this is what I'm trying to do. And what does it look like to work with, work with you? And, you know, from the buyer's point of view, Sometimes people will find a business or they'll see a business for sale and they'll just want me to look at it with them. Mm -hmm. And I've gone through so many of these files over the course of of my career that it really takes me very little time to cut through it. That's why for a lot of these analysis things, I I, I have a fixed rate schedule. So it's not like an hourly rate and you're worried, well, is it going to take him 10 or 12 hours to do this? And there's going to be a huge bill? No. I'll, I'll tell you up front what I charge uh, to look at the business based on its size uh, because I've likely seen businesses just like it many times before. And so it, you know, you can take advantage of that experience to get through it more quickly. David, I feel like we could talk for a long time. We're just scratching the surface on a lot of things. Um, is there anything specifically that we haven't talked, talked about that you thought would be valuable to people that are thinking about buying or selling a business? Um, I think really, like, like, let's go over the, the top reasons why people sell a business because um, I, I mentioned that people don't cash out from small businesses. The, the five reasons, number one is the burnout and fatigue or exhaustion that I mentioned. And there's divorce, poor health, the need to relocate and retirement. And if you, if you listen to that list, you realize only one of those items is something people plan for, retirement. Every other item on that list is a function of stuff in your life, right? And, and really, most of these small and medium-sized businesses are driven by things that are going on with the owner. The owner is the lifeblood of the business. And what happens in their life is going to have a huge impact on what goes on in the business. And so if 80% of the, the causes of a business going up for sale are out of someone's control, then this just reiterates why we need to have our business in a state of saleability all the time. So that when one of these things should come to pass, you're ready. Um, So often, you know, I I see good businesses 
and the owner has to sell quickly. And when we start to look at what they have and, and the position that they're in, they can often sell, but it's not under circumstances that they like. Uh, so I'll give you an example. You know, I've had little restaurants with a lot of cash business and not all of it was declared and their financial statements were a mess and it was a good business. And we could show someone that it was a good business, but there was nothing on paper that would show a banker that it was a good business, right? And so those little restaurants end up selling with the seller holding a note for sometimes way more than half the value of the business, right? Because they were never in a position for the business to be bankable, for somebody to be able to go and borrow money to buy it. And so these are some of the things I'm talking about is, is if you actually have your business in a state of saleability, it means that when it comes time to selling, you're going to be able to attract a much wider pool of buyers, which means the time frame will be shorter. And it means that those buyers are going to be more likely to be able to qualify for financing from lenders, which means even though you may still end up financing part of the deal, it's likely going to be far less. You'll walk away with more money on closing. And that's, these are the big drivers, the big concerns that most sellers have is they're like, well, if I, if, if I can't find anyone to buy, if nobody can get the money, I'm going to have to finance it. Now I have to trust, you know, the buyer to do a good job. I'm like, yeah, you, you're wearing both the business seller and the banker hat. So how you about have to pick, you have to pick the person who's going to be, wants to buy and is going to do the best job running it. For sure. It, uh, it, it stemmed another question. If you got, if you got a little bit more time, David yeah. is, uh, when someone's, let's say someone's not in a point of saleability versus somebody that is in a point of saleability, realizing that they could both probably go quick, even though the value that you're going to get from one or the terms, you might be drastically different, but from your experience, if someone's looking to sell, um, I, I can imagine that on the long term, it's just, they never sell. So it's like, it could be a year, it could be two years, but like you said, but on the fast end, if someone's like, Ooh, I'm ready to go, I want to get something done. What, what do you think are maybe some low average and high end, almost like if I'm using the real estate terminology, like days on market before someone would, you know, get an offer on their home or before they would sell it. Uh, because I imagine businesses are very different in it and it probably spreads a long path, but I'm, I'm curious if there's any bookends or if it's just, if it's so business specific that it's hard to put, you know, as soon as a week and, you know, on average 90 days and as long as, you know, two plus years or three plus years. So it, it, it's a great question. It really depends on the skills required to be the operator. So I'll, I'll give you an example, you know, corner stores, gas stations, little mom and pop restaurants sell very quickly because a lot of people would have the skills to be able to run them. But that same business in a small rural location may not sell so quickly because even though many people have the skills to run it, there's not many people in that area who have the skills and the money to make the investment or people who are willing to relocate to that area. So I see that around where I live, where, you know, a corner store in town will sell right away, but one that's, you know, an hour's drive from the city is sit on the market for a year before somebody buys it. I've also seen businesses that, you know, are owned by an engineer who's involved in the process of what they build. And so the buyer is going to have to be an engineer too. So you can have interested investors, but when they realize the critical skills required that the owner has, even if they hired someone to bring those skills in, that person would become a key employee and basically could hold them hostage, so to speak, because they would be in a position to demand whatever they wanted in order for the business to keep running. I've seen that not just in highly technical fields, but even in things like bakeries, 
right? I once had a, a French bakery for sale. And how you get a French baker is you take a 12-year-old and you put them in a bakery in France and 10 years later, they're a French baker. Like there's, there's it's, it's not like making cookies. There's this artistry and, and understanding the humidity in the room and understanding, you know, the smell when the dough is rising. Like there's all this stuff that make it so complex that if you don't know how to do it, you're going to have to hire people and then basically you'll be beholden to them. So it depends on the skills and it depends on, you know, how much money is going to be required to make this purchase. The lower the possible down payment, the greater the pool of buyers is going to be. And then on the other side of things, it's how documented and systematized is the business. So we'll give you a quick example. You know, if you had a roofing business and let's say, Adam, you had 20 years experience laying shingles and you decided to open your own roofing business and all day long you ran your crews and you did the work and in the evenings you did the quoting and you, you know, you've done so many roofs, you know how long it's going to take and how many shingles it's going to take. And you just come up with prices off the top of your head and probably run the business profitably. Well, if that's the way you run your business, the only person who can buy it is a roofer who might be younger than you, right? So you're going to limit your buyer pool to people with the same skill set. Whereas if you took the time to build some kind of quoting tool, like a spreadsheet, where you could put in measurements and put in the cost of, you know, your materials and, and have a, a way of estimating how long it takes to do so, you know, it takes a guy an hour to do so many feet of valley flashing or whatever it is, right? And you worked all of this into a spreadsheet. Well, now you can show someone that you can teach them how to do quoting and you can teach them how to get the necessary gross margin when they bid a job. And now a lot more people who have an aptitude or interest in building or project management who may not specifically have skills in roofing could become the owner of that business. And they could do a good job doing the quotes, visiting homeowners, et cetera. And they could be taught, you know, how to make sure that the guys are working and everything. So what you do in that circumstance is by building the tools and building the systems is again, you widen the, the field of potential buyers and, what I've learned is that the bigger the field of potential buyers, the faster it sells. You, you mentioned days on market. If, if there are more people that can buy it, it's going to sell more quickly. And that means more people with the skills and more people with the money. I mentioned earlier an example of a business owning a building. If you have a business that owns its own real estate and you insist on selling them together, then you need a buyer who not only can make a down payment on the, on the business, but also on the building. So that person, you might be looking for a person that has $400,000 available. Well, if you separated them, if you were willing to sell the business and become the landlord, maybe somebody with 50 or 60 or 70,000 could be the buyer. And so that's going to increase the field of potential buyers and reduce the timeline. That's great stuff, David. I love how you break it down. Pretty simple. It's, uh, it's no doubt that you've been doing this for a really long time. Fantastic. So once again, um, you know, there was a couple different websites that, that David, you mentioned, if, if anything else, if there's only one place to start to mm. reach out to you today, David, just to get to learn more about you and all the different things that you're going, where would you point them to? I would point them to davidcbarnett.com. It's my main blog site. And every week when I put out something, it goes on there and, um, the, uh, you know, there's an email list people can sign up to if they want to, if they don't want to miss a new video, for example, um, but yeah, um, I'm on YouTube. I'm on the podcast catchers and davidcbarnett.com is the blog site. 
Fantastic, David. Thank you for your time today. It was absolutely wonderful getting to know you more. Awesome, Adam. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. You can always learn more by reaching out to us at homeequitypartner.com. Have a good day.